Today's reading comes from Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of God. Well, my phone gave me several notifications this morning as I woke up. Um, the last several days they've been about the impeachment, but today it was either about the Super Bowl or about Groundhog Day. And in case you hadn't heard, I guess uh, it's going to be spring soon. But... Um, Paxatwani Phil gave this weather, weather report, and, but I thought it was interesting. Did you know that there's a Chihuahua Charlie in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, that is the leading contender for making predictions about Ground Dog Day? <clears throat> but Charlie is not alone for in Nova Scotia. There's uh, the lobster, Lucy the Lobster, who's also competing for that. And then there's Bee Cave Bob, an armadillo from Bee Cave, Texas, near Austin. And Buffalo Bert from Buffalo, New York, or the puppet groundhog of John, Mount Joy, Pennsylvania. <clears throat> there's almost as many contenders for the weather report as there are presidential candidates in any presidential year, um, election year, but the winner is a Washington, D.C., Potomac Phil. He's a taxidermy groundhog. He wins because he's predicted four more years of impeachment. <laughs> so much for the levity today. <clears throat> but, you know, we do have to have fun in life, right? Let us uh, offer a word of prayer as we begin. <clears throat> Lord, we are here because we are your possession. You have your mark of ownership on us, the Holy Spirit in us. It is to you now that we listen. We listen to your word because you, you have, by your word, revealed your grace to us. So let us quietly listen for your word. Amen. It's interesting this psalm pictures a great deal of contentment a soul that is quiet, who minds his own business. They are settled down. No indication of stress is given in this particular psalm, 
no authorities trying to micromanage him, he's satisfied. Well, what is contentment? In the 17th century, Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. He defined contentment as that sweet, inward, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Hmm. So, are you a contented person? Or is there inward discontent? Interesting that the early portions of this worship service directed our attention to inward discontent. But this psalm is quite a contrast to the one that Drew preached on last Sunday, Psalm 130. You remember that was a song of lament and the deep sorrow that began when Drew's booming voice cried out, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. You remember that. He pleads for mercy, waiting for the Lord, knowing that in the Lord there is forgiveness and that there is redemption. Uh, this psalm, it seems as though the writer has learned his place, and he does not have the internal agitation that we sense in so many other uh, writings of, uh, in the psalms. <clears throat> Yet, considering what we know about David, as he has written in the other psalms and in the historical books of the Bible, I'm intrigued by what has happened to him that has led him to have a quiet soul. Maybe this is the last days of his life. Who knows? But he now has a quiet soul and it minds his own business. Um, the call to worship this morning that we read, uh, had read to us Records David as saying, Save me, O God, for the waters are up to my neck. I sink in deep mire, and there is no foothold. Do you remember that? Uh, the flood sweeps over me. I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched, <clears throat> as you can tell. Well, that doesn't sound like the David of Psalm 131. And we wondered about when did he write this? Was this when he was a young shepherd out in the field tending the sheep and playing his harp to keep them in, uh, nearby? Or maybe when he was killing the lion who was trying to get a good lamb chop? Um, maybe he wrote it when he was the champion uh, who killed Goliath. Or um, playing his harp uh, to keep Saul, Saul's inner spirit calm. Um, maybe it was when he was in the favor of King Saul in, in, in the court. Or maybe it was uh, when he became the popular warrior that the many songs were sung about him. Was that when he wrote this psalm? I wondered what his emotional response when Saul offered two daughters to him in marriage, but then reneged and gave them to other men. Or when Saul feared that King David was going to take his throne and he tried to kill him. What was, how calm was he then? Or what happened in his psyche when his hormones got the best of him? 
in that episode with Bathsheba. Surely, uh, when he found her pregnant, he wasn't minding his own business when he arranged to have Uriah killed in battle. <clears throat> or when uh, Absalom, his son, decided he was going to take over the throne and led that rebellion. How do you suppose? Can you imagine how David might have felt in all of that? He had to flee into exile, even to pagan country, uh, away from his people. Did all of these trials and temptations lead to a quiet soul who minded its own business and he settled down? Could well be. But discontentment is a problem as old as time. Jeremiah Burroughs, the author I quoted earlier, said even Adam and Eve, who had been created with a perfect relationship with him, with God and with each other, they had a beautiful world. They had most anything they could eat except for the tree, but they wanted precisely what they didn't have. Hmm. Burroughs then continued, discontentment springs when we don't get our expectations met. We think we deserve an easy life, comfort, luxuries, and we become discontent when instead we face sickness and hardship and we soberly then examine ourselves, but if we do examine ourselves, we find that we have really missed the mark. We have rebelled against God, and we deserve his condemnation instead. And this should drive us to humility rather than discontent. Well, how do you, how, what's your life like today? Philip's prayer really captured the essence that many of us, I believe, do feel. What is your life like? Is there stress? Well, they say that a, a certain amount of stress, they call it eustress, is okay, it's good. It drives us towards excellence, but not too much. Few people, there's few people, I think, who don't devise in their mind in their heart, uh, a better plan for the present situation in their work, or a better way to fix their spouse. <laughs> you know, it's common to tell um, a young man that he needs to settle down. Sometimes that goes well into the 30s, doesn't it? Today, uh, for most of you to get to this experience of, of worshiping the Lord, you've already had a certain amount of, uh, of uh, discontent because, well, especially if you have little kids, <laughs> it's kind of a challenge to, uh, to get them here and get them dressed, get them on time. <coughs> Even the morning rush hour is sort of aggravating as you work your way through traffic to get there on time and spilling coffee or get the garbage uh, can out to the curb before you spill it all over the, the driveway. Or you can think about the, the, um, 
the green mold in the refrigerator on the leftovers, or the computer glitch when you're short on time and you just have got to get this project done. Or maybe even the neighbors are driving you nuts. Um, now, there's a few teenagers here. If you're a teenager, you know that soon you're going to be on your own, and you don't know whether, there's, whether to have fear and trepidation about this because you'll have to figure things out by yourself, or some of you are looking forward to that day. It can't happen soon enough. If you're in the latter group, I'd say you're self-deceived. <laughs> it's a tough world out there. So who has not struggled with the thought that we are on our own? We've got we to figure it out ourselves. If life is going to work, we have to do it ourselves. Um, we have to be the ones that's going to arrange for any good thing that's going to happen in our life. Oh, yeah, we pray about it. <clears throat> yeah, we pray about it. But why is God so silent when we need him involved and, and to speak to us? So sometimes we wonder, where is he? Does he have our back? So as we unpack this psalm, we find there's only three verses. I love the simplicity of them. O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. <clears throat> the message translates this. I'm not trying to rule the roost, God. I don't want to be king of the mountain. I do not, I haven't meddled where I have no business. And I haven't fantasized grandiose plans. The Jerusalem Bible phrases it, Yahweh, my heart has no lofty ambitions. Or another says, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. My heart is not proud. Haughty or humble? What is pride? Well, there are several synonyms that match it. Uh, puffed up, self-satisfied, excessive self-esteem, grandiose, imposing, stately. <clears throat> is pride a, a sin or is it a good thing? Well, sometimes we think it's okay to, to have a certain degree of pride. But Proverbs calls a proud heart a sin. And James says God opposes the proud and gives the grace to the humble. So, we rather hold high the virtue of humility. The only problem with humility is that as soon as we are humble, we look at ourselves and say, look how humble I am. <laughs> and immediately we're proud. <clears throat> Psalm is aware that the Lord knows his heart. And he doesn't try to impress God falsely, because if he tries to impress God falsely, he knows he is being deceitful. So he must avoid being too proud of himself and too self-righteous before the Lord. What does God know that the psalmist 
doesn't know. Uh, right away, <clears throat> I know that David speaks for me because I'm puzzled about those parts of myself I don't understand or that I'm blind to. I'm guessing that you might be as well. What do others see in us that we're blind to? Yet, intuitively, we know that God knows all about us. I want to know myself as God sees me. Yet, I wonder how much junk will be revealed. It's kind of scary. The challenge is competency or ambition. I do believe we have to know we're competent. We can make our way in the world. <clears throat> Accomplishing things is worthy. Yet, pride in our achievements can easily shift into ambition. Lance Armstrong built his kingdom by winning the Tour de France bike races, but when his breaking the rules was revealed, his kingdom went into a sinkhole. That's ambition run amok. <clears throat> when David wrote Psalm 139, he was honest to admit that God knows all about him. There was absolutely nothing hidden from him. The Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. You discern my thoughts even before I know them. It continues in that psalm that he cannot escape from God. Because everywhere he goes, everywhere he flees, God is there. Even God made him in his mother's womb. He marvels at the wonder of God, and he concludes that. You remember those verses? Search me and know me, God, and see if there's any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. David wants to know if there's any fault in him. Essentially, it seems like at that point he has given up pride. And it takes courage, courage to ask God to reveal all of the stuff that's in us that we're blind to, Right? You recall the disciples had this argument about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus answered them by calling a little child in their midst and said, unless you change and become like little children, you're never going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like one of these children will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. No longer, he was telling them, are you to seek being the top dog. But we are all drawn to the fleshly desire to feel smart, to be woke or in the know. But aspire to what God, to know what God's call is to you. Eugene Peterson reminds us that closely related to ambition is this word aspiration. I think we should strive for the best that God has for us. Few of us are satisfied with mediocrity. And there must be a balance between mediocrity and perfectionism 
we kind of hate people that come off as perfectionists, too. God, Paul knew God's plan for him. Paul was driven to take the, Gentile, to the, Gen, the gospel to the Gentiles. And he said he forgets the past. He forgets the past. Does that mean he forgot and did no longer feel guilty about all the junk in the past of his life? I think so. But it hangs on for us. But he said, I forget the past and strain toward the future, toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So to what do you aspire to? What is God's call to you? What is his plan for you? Well, this psalm also suggests that we should avoid apathy or arrogance. My eyes are not lifted too high. I do not occupy myself with things that are too marvelous for me. The Good News translation, Lord, I've given up my pride and turned away from my arrogance. And the contemporary English version I am not conceited, Lord. I don't waste my time on impossible schemes. But what the heart desires, the eyes look for. Money, comfort, power, status. If we're to model the life of Christ, shouldn't we expect suffering hardship and persecution as he did? Are we entitled to more? Obviously, this psalm suggests we should avoid the impossible dream and avoid arrogance. But the Bible also tells us about the man who had one talent and wouldn't put forth his best effort for the master. For he said, the cards are all stacked against me. Why try? And that's apathy. Not a very desirable aim in life. Or can you imagine a five-talent woman who disdains the one-talent woman and wants to be treated as the star of the show? and admired by the team, a haughtiness to avoid. I think the psalm is also telling us to not try to resolve the mystery of God. You know that when 911 happened, there were many voices that asked God, why would, allow God, why would God allow something this horrible to happen? Why couldn't God prevent it? Do you remember those? But there are times when we get into matters we know th nothing about. And we have the goal to speak for God, to explain his actions when in our wiser moments we know we should keep our mouth shut. God is a mystery, a mystery that we'll only resolve in eternity.
Must we think we should know everything? Richard Rohr asked, do we think we have the infinite mystery of God in our quite finite pocket? We supposedly know what God is going to say or do next. It's really okay to say, I don't know. Job demanded an answer from God. In the whirlwind, the Lord spoke to Job. Who is this that darkens my counsel without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? Tell me if you have understanding. And then follows a litany of unanswerable questions for 71 verses, two chapters, to which Job said, I'm of small account. I will cover my mouth. Or your boss might put it this way. Who's this smart guy who speaks of things way above his pay grade? I like what Eugene Peterson said. I will not try to run my life for the lives of others. That is God's business. I will not strut about demanding that I be treated as a center of my family or the neighborhood or my work, but seek to discover where I fit and what I am good at. That seems like a quieted soul. When do we speak for God? Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do the works of the law. A calmed and quieted soul is like a weaned child. I recently read a review of a book entitled Elderhood by Louise Aronson, a medical doctor, a geriatrician. She gives gloomy, gloomy facts about the elderly, uh, such as 80% of the 5.3 million Americans who has some form of dementia, are over the age of 70. <laughs> 13 million wear adult diapers. I wanted to stop reading. <laughs> <laughs> but I determined to finish it. There was an upside. She writes that arriving, arriving at the age of 60, that catch a bunch of you, and beyond brings freedom from worry, lessened depression and anger, a firmer sense of one's self, what one values, greater contentment and happiness, providing one arrives at age 60 and beyond without too many regrets. So it would seem she would suggest, the normal process of aging tends to have a lot to do with calming the soul. 
But I submit so does having a relationship with Jesus Christ. Becoming transformed into the image of Christ does its slow but sure work of changing us from the inside out. I assure you, I had to change a lot. I remember in my 40s, having just purchased a new Volvo, how proud I was, driving to work along University Avenue, thinking how much cooler I must be compared to the guy in the next lane over driving a Plymouth. <laughs> how stupid. Spurgeon said, it is no easy thing to quiet yourself. Sooner may a man calm the sea or rule the wind or tame a tiger than quiet himself. Again, blessed are those afflictions which subdue our affections which wean us from all self-sufficiency, which educate us into Christian manliness or womanliness, which teach us to love God, not merely when he comforts us, but even when he tries us. My paraphrase of that is this. Getting beat up on life by life is a good thing. <laughs> if we can avoid become bitter, rather, turning to God to teach us to give up trying to control others to get what we want. I'm going to repeat that. Getting beat up in life is a good thing. If we avoid becoming bitter, but rather turn to God to teach us to give up trying to control others to get what we want. And Spurgeon also said, if pride is gone, submission will be sure to follow. If pride is to be driven out, self must be vanquished. In this Psalm 131, David concludes as one who has quieted his soul and he urges all of Israel and his friends and companions to do the same, to hope in the Lord. But my question is, how do we live in the hope of the Lord? An easy phrase to repeat. We all want to live in this hope. We all want to have a quiet soul. And some of you do. Have a quiet soul. You feel contented, secure, but I would submit that reality for many of us is quite different. For those who have inner struggles and turmoils, how will you live in this hope of a quiet soul? I've been watching the um, film. Messiah on Netflix with my daughter and her husband in that series. The Messiah has appeared in a very modern day setting of 
conflict in the Mideast between Israel and the Palestinians and the conflict in this country over immigration. But it's very apparent people are unsure of what to do with the Messiah. They expect him to do miracles and to fix things that are wrong. <laughs> Just like us. But the compelling line of the story in this episode was, he's not in our story. We are in his story. Jesus has appeared in our scenes, has he not? And we're unsure what to do with him. We'd like him to fix things in our lives. Yet, we're unsure of what happens next. Dr. Aronson, the gerontologist, gives a list of four items as a recipe for good old age. Good genes, good luck, enough money, and one good kid. <laughs> Usually a daughter. And I live with my daughter and her husband. Do you see my smiley face? <laughs> I like living near family. Fifteen of the 36 live around here. Seeing Kelly and Brandon and Maddie and um, Cameron and Olivia and Emily, it's a joy for me to see these great-grandchildren. And I have a great-grandson, Noah, who's 13 months, I think. He comes to our house several times a week. When I see him toddling over to me, holding both of his arms up to be picked up, um, I pick him up and he gives me a big smile and he presses his cheek against mine. It gives me a reason to live. Aronson points out, loneliness can contribute to an earlier death. Religion, interestingly, says, to a later one. Hmm. So having a reason to live is correlated to longer lives. Voltaire, who I understand is not known as a Christian apologist, said, when all hope is gone, death becomes a duty. Viktor Frankl was a Jewish psychiatrist who became a celebrated survivor of the Nazi concentration camps. He was born in Vienna and arrested by the uh, Nazis in 1942. Afterwards, he wrote many books, one entitled Man's Search for Meaning. Speaks about hope in the death camp. He writes this. The prisoner who had lost faith in the future, his future, was doomed. His loss of belief in the future went with that. He also lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline and become subject to mental and physical decay. For those who survived the Nazi death camp had reason to live, he said. Even Friedrich Nietzsche said this. He who has a why to live can bear with almost any how. 
<laughs> Frankel attempted to restore inner strength to fellow inmates by showing them some future goal. He adds, the typical reply with which a man, such a man rejected all encouraging arguments was, I have nothing to expect from my life anymore. As I get closer to the end, my options are to trust the word of Christ and his call to me or simply die and turn to dust. But he is not in our story. We are in his story. It is called submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Earlier I asked, to what do you aspire to? What is God's call to you? What is his plan for you? Can you put into two words what is God's call to you? Please allow me to take a couple of minutes to tell you how I have arrived at my two words. And I only do so to encourage you to seek for your purpose your reason for living. Six years ago, my wife suffered a stroke and that left her speechless and unable to walk. I embraced the call of God to be her full-time caregiver with great joy and no doubts whatsoever. But when she died, my question was, oh, what now? Where do I fit into your story now, God? Do I just mark time now to the end? I joined my son-in-law to participate in the Dr. Larry Crabb School of Spiritual Direction. That triggered something in my soul. About a year ago, I was informed that I'd been nominated to be an elder. The year's vetting promise process, the year's vetting process, confronted my reluctance. I wondered, what can I contribute to such a competent group of men? Yet I've been encouraged by many meaningful conversations with several in this congregation. So last year, I began to write down some memories of my 88 years. Those reflections have helped to identify the struggles and the highs and the lows, and there are both. Through that process, I began to see the lies that I told myself and the truths that God was revealing to me. And one of the truths I've concluded is that I do fit in God's story. I want to know God. I want union with God. I don't want to know just about God. I want to know God. Just recently, I attended a conference sponsored by Life Unique, 
that led me to a process of identifying God's call to me at this chapter of my life. And what have I concluded from that? I believe that God has called me to encourage, challenge, maybe even provoke those aha moments of clarity in your own life to be transformed by the Holy Spirit into people, into persons that people see the image of Jesus Christ. My two words are mentoring, transformation. That's my purpose. My passion. I have something to live for. Well, I believe there are no accidents in life. Everywhere you go, God has prepared the way for you. Do you believe that? But all of the things that happen in our life is used by God's great plan to prepare us for the big dance, the great banquet for life in his presence. John Eldridge reminds us that while God doesn't cause all the trials in our lives, he does use them. God works all things for good. We know that because we're called according to his purpose. He will use pain to expose the lies that we believe about ourselves or about God. He will prick in a place in us that he has touched before or wounded before, primarily to reveal the brokenness within us so that God can heal our brokenness. And that healing process occurs when you trust that Christ bore in his body on the cross all the junk in your life. Tomorrow, many of you are going to wonder if you're going to measure up to the expectations of the boss. The boss who is, always seems to be demanding more of less, with less. They cut positions, double the workload. Or give me an assignment that's got to be finished by tonight or at least by the end of the month if it's a big one. And the micromanager won't give you the freedom that you need to do your best work. For some of you, the conflict is at home with your spouse. Makes you wonder if this is going to hang together. For some, there's a divorce or a separation that's ugly. What does the Messiah expect of you in this reality? We're constantly on our attention to not mess up. Or there's mourning over the death of a loved one that takes a disruption of our inner peace. Chronic disappointment seems to take a toll on our spirit. 
a physical illness that lingers on and on, interferes with doing your best work, takes you down. You bravely hang on. But bravely hanging on gradually erodes your union with God. Satan's line of attack. For teenagers, there's the bully. The guy or the girl who wants to use you for their pleasure. And the academics press on you. Maybe oppress. Your future depends on it. The 17th century Burroughs believed that discontentment strikes right at the heart of God's character. When we question our circumstances, we doubt his wisdom and power. A content person would be able to say, the Lord knows how to order better things better than I. And how do I know that had it not been for this affliction, I should have been undone. We know in our head there is a promise and a future that gives us hope, but in reality, we're still in exile. We're still in Babylon. How shall we live in our journey through this life? Well, Jeremiah gave the exiles advice on how to live in Babylon. You recall the words of the letter that Jeremiah wrote from Jerusalem? Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, multiply there, do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me, and when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Does not Jeremiah speak to Trinity Park? To each of us in the midst of whatever is in our lives? The good, the bad, the ugly? We live in Babylon, but we dream freedom. It will take 70 years. That's a lifetime. God does have a plan for us. And we get a taste of it here. But it's only a taste. We'll get it in full when we get to the metaphorical Jerusalem, the city of God, in the very presence of God himself then we will know God. How do we participate in his plan, in his story? Seek the Lord today, now. And seek him with all your heart. And if you do, you will find him. And you'll find a quiet soul, a settled life. Mind your own business and a clear purpose for why you are here today.
believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And he'll bring us to the renewed Garden of Eden. And you'll know exactly which part of that garden is yours to till and to keep. But even now, God will give you a clue in which part of his, this garden in North Carolina you are to tell and to keep. Ask him. Hope in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we know that the only way we can have a quiet, settled soul and mind our own business is to fully embrace your unending and thorough love for us. Acknowledge that you paid a ransom for us to redeem us from trying to manage our own lives. You did that when Christ bore in his own body the penalty we deserve for our rebellion and when we accept your full forgiveness, men, to flood over our guilty souls. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.